This is a HeadGum Podcast. Good One is brought to you by Spotify. To subscribe to our show, search for Good One, tap follow, and get every new episode delivered to you. Podcasts on Spotify, they're streaming right now. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Good One, a podcast about how and why jokes come together. I am Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. This episode is going to be a little bit different, but I think it's good and you'll like it, so I hope you understand. In early June, I was asked to moderate a panel at Clusterfest with Trevor Noah and The Daily Show correspondents, Dulce Sloan, Michael Costa, Desi Lydic, Ronnie Chang, and former Good One guest Roy Wood Jr. Though not technically an episode of Good One, I am me and I have my interests, so I used the opportunity to learn more about the show's process, using specifically the May 29th episode as an example. The result just seemed like exactly the type of conversations we try to have here, so we decided to release it as an episode of Good One, in conjunction with the Daily Show with Trevor Noah Ears Edition podcast. So, here's the monologue from the May 29th episode of the Daily Show with Trevor Noah, followed by all of us talking about how they put together a show daily. If you logged on this weekend, you probably noticed something big. I got a new banner. Yes, that was one thing. And, and, no, for real, and you also probably noticed the trending topic, hashtag, where are the children, right? Most of you were probably like, I wonder what this is about. And one of you was probably thinking, oh shit, the jig is up. But actually the hashtag was about this. The Washington Post reports the U.S. lost track of nearly 1,500 immigrant children in the last three months of last year. The children crossed the border with Mexico on their own and were taken into custody. They were placed with adult sponsors in the U.S. Last month, the Department of Health and Human Services officials said the agency had lost track of them. The Department of Health and Human Services lost 1,500 immigrant children. How do you lose 1,500 children? If you want to find them, just let R. Kelly sniff a piece of their clothes. He'll find them. Yeah. Come on, Pied Piper, use your powers for good. Now, if you were only reading the headlines and the tweets, you'd be thinking right now that the Trump administration had captured and then lost 1,500 kids. And because of that, people online lost their shit. They were like, this is an outrage. How could Donald Trump lose our precious immigrant babies? I'm so angry I could scream. Because that's how these things start, right? Someone reads a headline, then they start a hashtag. People retweet the hashtag without doing their own research, and that creates a snowball of outrage. But the truth is, Trump hasn't lost track of any kids. There may be a reason that these 1,500 children can't be found right now. They may not want to be found. The Department of Health and Human Services says that the children are not missing. Rather, they are unaccounted for because their sponsors have refused to respond to follow-up calls. Sources in the shelters for the children tell CNN Some sponsors could be undocumented as well and don't want to interact with U.S. immigration officers. Yeah, you see, it turns out these immigrant kids aren't lost by Trump. They just don't want any contact with anyone in the Trump administration, sort of like Melania. Now, (laughs) at the same time as this was happening, another misinformed immigration scandal blew up online. Someone tweeted these photos of the U.S. government holding undocumented children in cages. And again... Without doing research, people online lost their shit. The president has caged our precious children. He's milking them like cows. What has become of our republic? Impeach! (laughs) Once again, this group of people didn't get its facts straight. Because you see, those kids, unfortunately, yes, they were sleeping in cages. But this picture was from 2014, when the president was slightly less tan, right? (laughs) 
And what was weird for me was that when people thought it was Trump, they were like, what kind of monster would put children in cages? And then they found out it happened under Obama and all of a sudden they were like, look, I mean, sometimes kids gotta be caged, you know? And, <laughs> you know, and cages are complicated things. I mean, there's good cages, you know, Luke Cage, Nicholas Cage, the bird cage. The point is I've deleted my tweets, but still impeach! And look, I understand that people do genuinely care about this issue, but sometimes it pays to slow down. Let's take a breath. Let's read past headlines before we start sharing misleading stories that Trump will use to discredit all other news. He's gonna do it. He did it with this story. So just so we're on the same page, Trump didn't lose 1,500 kids and his administration didn't put those kids in cages, all right? But don't worry, you can still hate him. <laughs> because he and his administration have started doing something that is way worse. Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced tough new immigration policies that will go into effect soon that will separate parents and children caught illegally crossing the border. If you are smuggling a child, then we will prosecute you. And that child may be separated from you as required by law. How can someone so cute be so evil? <laughs> because although Trump's still skin over here is smiling while he's saying this, you have to admit, this is a heartless way to deter people from coming into the U.S. illegally. There are less cruel ways to discourage people from coming into the U.S. Instead of taking their kids away, why not just force everyone crossing illegally to look at this picture of Ted Cruz at the Rockets game? Why not do that? Yeah, which, by the way, I don't blame James Harden for missing all those shots, yeah. Imagine trying to play with that face in the crowd. You tell me you would make a shot. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if Harden made a shot, saw Ted Cruz smile, and then was like, oh, I'm never doing that again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this, this new policy's cruelty, is, it isn't just in how it separates kids from their parents. It's how Trump's people don't even seem to care about what's gonna happen to the kids once they've taken them away. White House Chief of Staff John Kelly has dismissed criticism of this policy shift, saying during a recent interview with NPR, the children will be taken care of, put into foster care or whatever. Foster care or whatever. Yeah, that totally makes it sound like you care. Was he that nonchalant when he was in the Marines? General, what's the plan of attack? When I give the signal, we go in with the guns and something, something, and then like, whatever. <laughs> now, when this policy first started, I think President Trump was probably thrilled with it. He was like, we're taking kids away from their parents. Pack your bags, Eric. We're going to the border. Come on, Eric, let's go. <laughs> but, but as it turns out, as it turns out, the blowback from this policy has been so fierce that even President Trump is now going, uh, it wasn't me. President Trump falsely laid the blame for the policy separating children from their parents uh, at the border on the Democrats. The president tweeted out Saturday morning, put pressure on the Democrats to end the horrible law that separates children from their parents once they cross the border into the United States. Wow, really? This is the Democrats' responsibility. Even for Trump, that's a terrible lie. Come on, everyone knows the Democrats don't run shit. But that should just tell you how awful this real policy is. This is the first thing ever that Trump doesn't want to put his name on. favorite thing. <laughs>
thank you guys for uh, joining us here. Thank you for having us. Um, I thought a good place to start was to run through how a typical show goes. Uh, but I want, so I want to talk about Tuesday's episode because it was after a week off and after Memorial Day. But I think a good place would be, how was last week? When you're not making the show, are you all watching the news? Are you not watching the news? Do you try not to think about it at all? I think it's a, it's a, it's a combination of both. I mean, I find I pay less attention to the daily machinations of what's happening on the news, but I'm, I'm always in tune with what's happening. And now, you know, it used, to be, it used to be a story where you could escape the news, so you would go for a vacation overseas and you'd lose all touch with what's happening in America. But now, genuinely, Donald Trump has become such an international phenomenon that when I travel, people ask me about what's happening because it's happening to them as well. So there's no escaping it. You just have to lightly, uh, I guess, you know, indulge in it and be like, all right, I'm not working, I'm not working, I'm not working, I'm not working. Do they ask you because you're Trevor Noah or because you're an American? Oh no, they asked me because of The Daily Show. Okay, People, cool. like, you be, like, that's the great thing about The Daily Show now is you know, we, we're in 133 countries and territories and so we have people from everywhere, from Norway to Denmark to you know, South America, and South Africa. You, you, you have people from all over the world going, hey, what the hell is going on? Yeah. <laughs> do, do the rest of you end up watching news when you're off? I usually go back to Kentucky and visit my very Republican parents and get a totally different perspective <laughs> of the news. It's a whole other news there. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you can't avoid it, like Trevor yeah. said. Even if you want to avoid it, I, you know, enable notifications on my phone. And so I just get it anyway, whether you want it or not. Uh, I get on Instagram and watch drag queen and cooking videos. <laughs> <laughs> That's the same I answer do. I had, so. <laughs> so uh, talking about Tuesday's episode, Trevor, um, I want to focus on the, the monologue, but... You know, literally, like, what time are you getting in and what is your mindset after a long break? Well, when you come in from a long break, the, 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 the most difficult part of creating the show is figuring out what to catch up on, what to start building towards, and then how to combine those two ideas into one show of the day. So when we come back on Tuesday, it's also strange because it's Memorial Day, there's a break, so you're not coming back on a Monday, so you don't like kick off the week in the same way. So you, you're trying to figure out uh, which pieces of the news are best gonna be, um, you know, are gonna work best for that episode on the day. And we also live in a world where now we've accepted that the news is always changing. There is no such thing as the news. It is just news, it's happening, it's evolving, anything can happen at any time. 5.30 p.m., somebody's indicted for something, they've pled guilty about something else, and you have to think of how you're gonna include that in the show. So what we work with is like a foundation. We go, this is what the news is right now. You know, I look at it like the weather, I go like, right now it's sunny, but at any time it could change. So how did you, when you sort of went to the morning meeting, how did you decide on, you know, you, the French-African Spider-Man story? Uh -huh. And then uh, the, the whole next section was sort of about clarifying the story about lost immigrant children and then, uh, then getting to Trump's actual policy. How, do, how was that sort of the thing that you felt was what you had to focus on? Well, that, that was easy for us because that was really one of those rare times when the zeitgeist seemed to be focused on one issue. And that's always what we're trying to do on The Daily Show, is be in a space where we're having the conversation that connects best with what people are talking about, and then at times we're also jumping out of that and creating episodes that speak to an idea that maybe we have. Um, and so uh, Mamadou, who's the, 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 the French, um, uh, or the, the man in France from Mali who was you know, climbing the building and saved the little baby, 
that story was viral. And then, you know, Emmanuel Macron taking him to the, you know, to, 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 to stand in front of the press, the press and he gives him the citizenship. And that, that becomes such a huge story that it's inevitable that we're going to speak about it on the show. That's, that's easy to deal with. The story of the 1,500 lost children that weren't actually lost is something that blew up on social media. And that's a little bit harder because it's not happening on television. Sometimes stories break online. And now because you have a president that presidents online, you have to figure out how do you how do you retell those stories? How do yeah, you without clips that you can cut to? Yeah, right the, 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 there are no clips. The clips are the tweets, and then people can delete a tweet, and then it's like it never happened, but it yeah. did. We all felt it, but it's gone. You know. <laughs> so it's like imagine if someone could shoot you with dissolvable bullets. That's what it feels like. So you'd be like, ow, but nothing. Yeah. Uh, so I imagine after the meeting, you're like, cool, this is what the show is, and then all the Roseanne stuff happens so quickly <laughs> that at one, it goes from like, oh, this is a problem, people are mad about it, and at 1.30 the show's canceled right. over Twitter. What do you do to sort of reassemble? How do Her you show was shit? canceled? Ah, <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Michael Costa, everybody. That's, that's basically, you see this? That's one my favorite show. <laughs> so then, from that point on, how is a monologue written and how involved are you considering that like everything is sort of in your voice that's a, a little bit more conversational? <laughs> well, the first thing is we don't, we don't write monologues at all. Um, the Daily Show for me in, in, in this iteration is really a conversation that connects to the news. You know, we're all absorbing the same news. We're all affected by the same news in different ways. Some of us directly or indirectly. And so really what it is is a conversation that is transferred to the, to the camera uh, and then to our audience. So. It'll be a conversation with myself and Roy. We'll be like, hey, did you see this? What do you think? Why do you think that? What happened, et cetera, et cetera. It'll be Desi and myself chatting through something. Ronnie will come and something. Dulce will chase me down a hole and tell me a crazy story. And Yay. so, and so, and so really it's just, it's just about figuring out how to have that conversation with the audience and, um, and, and in such a way that like the show feels like it has a purpose, yeah. but it also doesn't feel stayed and, and, and stuck in a certain format that doesn't really uh, suit what I would like to do. So is it sort of they'll, they'll write a collection of jokes and then you sort of weave it into a more... Well, rather, we'll go the other way around. I'll go, what's the news? What are the facts? What's the truth? And then we'll put the jokes oh, on top. That's the icing to the cake. Oh, interesting. So then from that point on, kind of walk us through the final stages. And also, what is it like to sort of talk about immigration so seriously and then... The, end, the last act is you talking to Johnny Knoxville about doing a fall in a movie. Like, well, when I, you get to that point, how are you feeling? About I feel like that's, that's, that's balance and that's life, you know? Life is about talking about immigration and then Johnny Knoxville <laughs> breaking his face. Isn't that life? Um, that's what I've always loved. That's what I enjoy about The Daily Show is we're not one-dimensional. You know, we can have fun. I think it's very important for myself as a human being and for the show, I feel, to exist in a very honest space where, yes, we may live in a world where at times we are terrified uh, because of Donald Trump and, and what's happening around us, but we also can't act like we don't laugh as human yeah. beings. We also can't act like we don't have lives to live. You know, I, don't, I do not wish to exist in one state where I'm only angry and only afraid because then I forget what I'm trying to get to uh, in the end. So. So it's, it's, it's really the balance that we're trying to create. So it's actually great to me to have a serious story about immigration and migrant children and refugees, and then Johnny Knoxville coming on at the end of the show to just have fun and talk about how he does his own stunts and breaks his face into thousands of pieces. <laughs> about how his eyeball falls out. Yeah, that was a, that's a real thing. He blew his nose and his eye fell out. I was so, like, everyone has different problems. Yeah. <laughs> so Roy, you also had a piece on the show. You did? Yes. About, yes, I did. Uh, you made a, your version of a Starbucks training video because two... 
<laughs> yeah, that was... Because Tuesday was the day they, they closed down to give, all, give racial bias training. Hello, Starbucks employees. I'm here today because you f***ed up, but that's fine. After today's training, those racial insensitivities will be a thing of the past. But first, a word to the black employees watching. You good, my dude, take off. Y'all ain't gotta watch none of this. It's straight. Now, for everyone else, we'll be reviewing how to handle some common scenarios that occur inside of a Starbucks. When an African-American customer enters your store, there's a right way to greet him and a wrong way. Here's some of the wrong ways. Yo, what's up, man? Can I get the ice oh, coffee? Oh, shit, he wearing a bandana. Don't kill me! Just take the money! Mm. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We are out of great drink. Hey, welcome to Starbucks. No, look. It was open. Mm. Now, here's the correct way to greet a black person in your store. Hello. Let's move on. Can you talk about sort of the thought process and then all that coming together? Well, a lot of that was cooked up by the writers in the weeks prior. So about two weeks before, as I call it, training day for Starbucks. <laughs> We figured out what would be the best way to tackle that. What would the world look like without Starbucks for a day? What would the training be like? And there were a lot of different ideas thrown around the building as far as what's the best way to tell that joke or what's the best way to figure that out. And then knowing that the training video would be internal, what would the training video look like? And so then that became working out the beats of what this training video would look like. And, rented out a coffee shop, and we shot a full-blown mock Starbucks video, which, according to a lot of Starbucks employees on Twitter, and you can verify this, was about 80% spot on <laughs> to exactly what they saw in the stores on that day. So, you know, we, we know our audience. Um, so, Roy, I've interviewed interviewed it before, and I, I know sort of how meticulous you are with your writing, but all of you, especially the, coming from stand-up where you have months or years to work on material before it gets on TV, what is it like to have things that you know it's, it might be you write an hour before it goes on? How has it been for all of you to sort of adjust to that speed and accept, well, this is the thing that's now ready, and this is, we have no choice to put it on? Well, I know the, the biggest difference for me coming from the world of stand-up into The Daily Show was um, relinquishing the idea that I would have to create everything on my own. And that's what's really fun about working in The Daily Show. As Roy says, an idea can come from anywhere. It gets amplified by the building. We work as a team, as a family. And so every piece has everyone behind it trying to make it as good as possible. So Costa could come into the meeting with a great idea that I end up using on the show, or I could say something that he does in his piece, and Dulce could have something that she creates for herself, and then we amplify that. And it's really trying to learn how to use as many people to, in, in essence, simulate time. Because with stand-up, you have your time. You have months to write a joke and to figure out what your story is gonna be. With The Daily Show, as the name implies, we are showy. So, um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, so, <laughs> you. So you have to find a way to create as quickly as possible and simulate time, and that's, that's putting all the minds together and trying to get through that process artificially. Mm -hmm. Do you have, have a, how's it been for anybody else? Uh, I know for me, it was very, because like most day jobs I've had, one, I didn't care, two, I 
should do customer service. I don't care if your lights come back on. Um, but I know for me, like when you come in, it's not someone sitting you watching down, it's a trading video. If you sit in the morning meeting and like, okay, here you go. And so to see the process and to see these are the stories that we've picked, it's some stuff that they pick doesn't always go on the show, but if you get an idea from something, you can grab one of the writers and say, hey, what do you think about this? And then it's like me and uh, Josh Johnson, one of our writers who's an amazing comic, anytime I get an idea, I go to Josh because I know how he is as a stand-up and, and we kind of think the same way, but I'm not, I'm not a writer the way he writes for the show. So I can go to him with my stand-up brain and his writer brain, and then we can kind of come up with an idea, or we go, nah, that ain't gonna work. <laughs> I think also, the, to me, the biggest difference in terms of stand-up versus doing a show every day is knowing and respecting when, when the process is complete. I think Trevor uses a phrase, pencils down. It's just at a certain time of day, this is the joke, this yeah. is the, as good as the joke can be, and this is what we have to put on TV. You don't have the luxury of time and constantly polishing. Sometimes that joke is the joke, and there may have been a better way to tell it, and you'll think of it walking home at 9.30 that night, but when it's time to tape, it's time to tape, so you can't labor all day over one joke when you have another 29 minutes of show to concern yourself with. There's also a show tomorrow, so as terrible or great as it was, it's over and the show's starting again tomorrow, so you can't worry too much about it, but for me personally, I hate giving other people control of my comedy, and it was something that I really have and still struggle with, because as a stand-up, it's 100% us, and, uh, but you do it a couple times with the, with the writing staff, who is fantastic, and you realize they know a lot of stuff too, and then you start to trust them, it makes it a lot easier. Thank you, everybody. I'm Michael Costa. Yeah. Dulce <laughs> uh, and Michael, you also had a sketch that came from the, the Starbucks events a couple weeks ago. Well, for years, 911's been handling calls that turns out aren't actual emergencies. Hello, 911, there are black people. Ma'am, stay calm. I'm scared too. The officers are on their way. So we came up with a program to help white people decide if their emergency was an actual emergency. We hired a black operator. 911, what's your emergency? Uh, I'm on the train and these black people are talking and it's loud and I think there could be a fight. Okay, sir, so let me get this straight. You called 911 because black people were talking loud? Uh, yeah, I, I guess. Okay, good. Here's what I need you to do. Stand up, walk to the window, and throw your bitch ass off that train. Uh, that was one of those situations where you're in your office working and you get a text and you're just like, hey, come look at this thing. You're like, okay, cool. So sometimes stuff is working while you're working and it's, you didn't know it was happening. There has to be a way to describe that where it's not everything sad. So you had to find what's the most basic way to do a 911 call with the stupidest thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, there's black people being loud. I'm like, when are we not loud? So that's why I love that sketch so much because it was those little things. It wasn't something like I'm walking in a dark alley and there's a black man with a hoodie. It's like, black people are having fun and I hate it. That's why I love the sketch so much because it's those are the... Those are the calls that kill people. Those little calls like that, 
where it's like, oh, I'm walking in broad daylight and I saw a black dude cross the street. He was suspicious. That boy could die. So that's why I like there was still the joke behind it, but there was still the gravity underneath it of these are the exact same calls that could cause problems for people. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's one, one thing at The Daily Show which I um, noticed after joining is it kind of focused my comedy into what, what are you trying to say? There's a lot of like, what are you... Oh. Someone bring their dog. It's a real dog. Yeah. It's a dog. I thought I, I thought I got heckled by a dog. It's like being in the office. There's like a thousand bring dogs dog in that up place. Here. We want the dog up here on the stage. <laughs> I'll take him home. He deserves was, a good home. Is that a dog? It is a dog. Oh, okay. Ronnie don't like dogs. No, I love dogs. What are you talking about? We have Ronnie, Ronnie, you Ronnie do not dogs. like dogs. I love dogs. Yeah. What do you Ronnie mean? Ronnie hates dogs. Yeah, and we I love have touching like 17 them. 17 of yeah. them in our building. We yeah. are a dog-friendly yeah, office. I'm, I'm it's Ronnie, great. Ronnie, Ronnie met it. my dog and said, how long is he going to live? That's the first thing he said. <laughs> I was curious. I was curious how long I would have to enjoy his presence. How much longer this dog had on the earth. I was, I'm sorry, was it? I'm sorry for loving a dog, man. Um, yeah, so... Dogs are awesome, and... You're talking about focusing your comedy. Oh, yeah, focusing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah focusing. Yeah, I think one of the questions we ask a lot of daily shows is, like, what are you trying to say? And that's something I never, never thought about when I was doing stand-up. Because when I, when I started doing stand-up, it was like, just, just, just laugh. And then now it's, like, now it's like, what are you trying to say with that? What, 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 what ultimately are you trying to say with the joke? So, uh, I've become less funny, is what I'm trying to say. Beyond the, uh, the sketches, obviously the correspondents do the field pieces. Uh, Desi, I'd like to talk to you about one you did recently I really love, which I feel is uh, particularly makes sense in San Francisco because it was about raw water. But if fluoride being a government-induced mind control drug is anti-science, where's Livewater getting all these sciencey charts and evidence? There's a lot of evidence to support that if you just go to the third page of Google. The third page of Google? That's where it really makes sense. When you say evidence, do you mean conspiracy theory? It's not a conspiracy if it's true. You know, 9-11, I think we all know what, what really happened there. What really happened there? Scroll to the third pa page of Google. Okay. So I did. But the only thing I discovered about 9-11 is that it's Ludacris' birthday. And the only thing I discovered about live water is that, holy shit! How much does this cost? Two and a half gallon glass jugs are $22 each, and then $12 to $16 per jug. So basically it's like the cost of a bottle of water and then lighting $28 on fire. It's a new idea. I can understand why there might be hesitation, but I recommend people try it. Well, just like I told Wolf Blitzer at that cocktail party, I'll try anything once. Can you talk about going into that and how you sort of approach it, knowing that this guy's gonna be uh, a real idiot? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think he's an idiot necessarily. I think he really believed in what he was doing. It was just all wrong. Um, I first of all, his name is Mukande, but his real name is Chris. So once we found that out, we're like, this guy is the perfect character for a field piece. Um, ironically, I got food poisoning on my way to film this, and I figured I earned myself probably like 17 poop jokes. So karma was not on my side necessarily, but it, uh, <laughs> 
he he was uh, yeah he it's so interesting doing field pieces like that because it's like you can sit across from someone and completely disagree with everything that they stand for and everything that they're doing but yet there's always some connection that you might have with the other person. You're really, I don't know, you're really trying to hear them out and you you try to see them for their good intentions. But yeah, he was... uh... Did you know he was uh, a truther before the interview or you're like, let's see what else he believes in and you found that out? We, the, the, he mentioned the third, finding out all of his information on the third page of Google, which was a beautiful surprise. <laughs> we were not equipped for that. We knew going in that he was sort of anti-science, but uh, yeah, that was, that was a fun gem we found out on the day. Did you know that every single episode of Good One is now on Spotify? Yes, it's true. I wouldn't lie to you, at least not about whether or not every single episode of Good One is now on Spotify. The very same app that has millions of songs now has thousands of podcasts. On Spotify, you can listen to all your favorite shows <coughs> and discover new ones, just not too many. I want to make sure you're still able to listen to every single episode of Good One three times in a row, back to back to back. To subscribe to our show, search for a Good One, tap follow, and get every new episode delivered to you. Podcasts on Spotify, they're streaming right now. And now. And now. How do you all approach field pieces? And, you, and Trevor, how do you think of field pieces that they fit into the show? I think whenever building a field piece, um, I try to look at, like Ronnie says, what we're trying to say, what the story is going to be, and what the larger issue is that the story will speak to. So with all our correspondents, we're lucky to have people who are talented and in different ways at executing a piece. So one thing I truly love about Desi is she has an amazing ability to delicately draw out all the crazy you have as a human being. (laughs) So whenever there's someone out there who is genuinely just like a mad person who believes everything they say, Desi's the best person because I don't know how she draws it out of them. She makes them feel completely at home. And without mocking them, just... Desi being Desi, she, she, she brings out the best or the worst in people. And so, and this is Desi That's even in the office. Says. Like when Desi meets you in the office, she'd be like, oh, is that your outfit? And you're like, is this a compliment? Or you don't know. It's you not don't a know. compliment. That's it's Southern. Not. That's, that's how southern. Desi is. And so that's, that's what's really great. So, so when building a field piece, you know, I always like to start with what is the story? Who are we speaking to? Why are we speaking to them? What are we trying to do? And what is the larger conversation that this is about? So the piece that Desi was on was about raw water. Um, uh, you know, a young man who doesn't believe in science and believes that we shouldn't be drinking the fluoride because it brainwashes us. And so he wants to drink water from streams and he sells it for, I don't know what, $40 a gallon or yeah. something like that. $32 and, a gallon. Right, $32 a gallon. And... Um, and, but really, the, the story for me was, the larger issue is about the anti-science movement. Yeah. You know, a group of people who have found anecdotal stories that propel ignorant ideas that are harmful to the, to the, to the world that we live in. And, and, and it's a fun, light way to tackle that subject without just going in and fighting about, yeah. about science or water or, or vaccines. And, and that's really what we're trying to do with every single piece, is engage with the story in a different way that, 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 that happens on the outside of the studio. What is, is there anything else you guys think about when you, before you go into a field piece? I think for me, when I'm going out, it's about making sure that you really get an understanding of who this person is. Because the thing that I, at least from my time on The Daily Show, 
it's not always just about what they think, it's who is this person? Because then you can better draw connections to how this person got to this place, how they got to this belief, how they got to this point of view. Because I think somewhere underneath all of that, with every field piece, there is still a desire to understand people who feel the way they feel. I legitimately want to know why you think you can just sell water out of a creek for $32. <laughs> and just going, what you're doing is bad. It's no, who are you? Walk me through this journey. How did you get to this place? And I think that's the thing that I try to make sure we come back with on the pieces I do, at least. Uh, Ronnie, speaking of your hatred of dogs, uh, you did a desk peek of- Don't des tweet that, it's gonna become a, <laughs> on my Wikipedia page. God damn it. It's you not true. You did a desk piece a, a few weeks back that I thought was so vital, I, I needed to talk to you, which was uh, your vicious takedown of Possifer Donut, the yeah. new Michigan police cat. These days, a lot of people are criticizing the police. Not me, of course, because I love the police. In fact, when people say, f the police, I say, yeah, I want to f the police. Hard. I want to make love to the police. I love the police. And cops around the country are making changes. But in Michigan, there's one police department that's going way too far. There is a new sheriff in town today. The Detroit Police Department's newest officer was sworn in for duty. Wow, the police got a kitten. Finally, Colin Kaepernick can stand. <laughs> How is this supposed to humanize the police? Liking cats doesn't make you sympathetic. It makes you every lonely person on Instagram, right? <laughs> And look, I get that law enforcement today is willing to do anything to get people to like them, except obviously not shoot black people. But this won't work because throwing cats at a problem never solved anything, right? I learned that the hard way during a grease fire in my apartment. <laughs> How did this story come to you and why you're like, I need to talk about this on television? Well, because we need to take people down. It's really <laughs> the aim of the show is to take people down on a daily basis and uh, on this particular day, the, the uh, victim of my wrath was this uh, cat who wanted to be a police officer <laughs> in Michigan. Um, I, that's, no, it was a kitten, not a cat. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. It was a cute little kitten. Yeah. But carry on, Ronnie. <laughs> um, I th well, I mean, first of all, I, the show, okay, the, sh the show is such a machine. It's been going on for so long, and every part of the machine is really, really good at our jobs. There's been people there since Kilbourne. You know, there's been people there since yeah. before Jon Stewart. So the machine keeps turning and, and um, produces ideas for everybody. And, you, you know, sometimes you, sometimes you initiate the idea, sometimes you just jump into it. Uh, in this particular case, <laughs> someone um, told me about this cat thing, and then, you know, we started like riffing off it, and then next thing you know, it was an act, and then we made it onto the show, and um, I can't believe we got an entire act out of it, to be honest. Yeah. I think sometimes it's also about tapping into w what we think each correspondent likes and who they are. So in this instance, it was, there's a police department that has a cute little kitten that they've deputized, and they've said, this is our police cat, and we thought, who hates cute animals? Um, and then Ronnie was the perfect person to, to handle that story. So uh, with Trump in the White House, there's sort of a lot of questions of like what comedians should be doing and how they should be focusing. What is the value of a, a story like this that is sillier that you know, might have a larger point about local news but doesn't directly tap in? What, what, for all of you, was it, why is it important to do a thing like this every once in a while? Well, I don't think it's important. I think it's who we are. You know? We laugh. 
We have fun. We have silly stories that we share with each other. And that's what we're trying to create on The Daily Show, is a space where we share with our audience. I do not want you to think of myself, nor my correspondents and friends, as one-dimensional human beings, because our day does not consist solely of rage. There are funny stories that come across our worlds where we just enjoy it, you know? We're, we're living and we're human beings, and so I think it's really fun to have fun in the midst of everything that is going on around us. And, and maybe that's something that I, I brought with me growing up. I, you know, I grew up in South Africa, and when I was growing up, the country was going through a tough time with apartheid. And then apartheid ended when I was six years old, but still the country was, was in a really, really rough place for many years. But I, I don't remember a time when my, myself and my family weren't laughing. We always laughed. And, and that's something that I've, that I've always believed in, is you, you shouldn't lose yourself because of the situation you're in. You, you, you can react to it, you can be honest about it, you can, you can be serious when you need to be, but the whole purpose of The Daily Show for myself is to provide a space for my audience where you can come into it, you can process the news, we can engage in this space together with like-minded or similar-minded individuals, and at the same time, remind ourselves of the fact that you know, we, we can laugh, we, we can enjoy ourselves, because without that, I think we would exist in a, in a, in a world of perpetual rage, and I don't think that's healthy, because if, if you go down that road, you just, you forget who you are and who you were trying to be in the first place. I've heard you talk about how... In line with that, I've heard you talk about how it was important for you not to have sort of intro pieces be angry. Can you talk a little bit about making that decision, especially coming from John, though not he was not angry all the time, but especially towards the end, he was sort of known for a, a righteous anger in a certain way. Can you talk about deciding to go that direction? Well, that's one of the best pieces of advice John Stewart gave me. I remember when John announced he was leaving, I, uh, I was lucky enough to be working on the show when John was still there and before he announced his departure. And I walked into his office and I said, hey, what, like, what's going on? Are you, are you being pushed out? What's happening? If you need my help, let me know, man. We'll fight. And, and John said, no, I'm, I'm leaving. And, and I said, why though? And he said, I'm leaving because I'm tired. And he said, I'm tired of being angry. And he said, I'm angry all the time. I don't find any of this funny. I do not know how to make it funny right now. And I don't think the host of this show, I don't think the show deserves a host who does not feel that it is funny. And he said, when you become the host, live and, re and, 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 and relish within that joy, like relish that, that moment, relish the fact that you can make jokes about these things. Because he said, because there will come a day when you are too angry to laugh, but don't rush to get there. You're young and you're fresh, and so enjoy the moments when you still have the energy. And in many ways, it reminded me of what my mother used to say to me. She'd be like, you know, like when you're a young parent, you can't chase your child. You can chase them and you can beat them because you have the energy. But when you, in Africa, we beat, get over it. And so, we beat here too, don't worry. <laughs> We're still black, we just on the other side. And so, and so my mom said, but then when you're older, you, 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 don't, you don't have the energy for kids anymore, you don't have the energy for that, you, you don't have the energy to be as angry. And so I, I realized that I, I, I have a space that I, I exist in as a human being where I use laughter and we, by proxy as the show, use that same laughter as a mechanism to help us deal with the very real world that we're living in. It doesn't minimize what's happening, it doesn't trivialize it, but it gives us a tool to deal with what's happening. And, and, and that's, what's, that's what's really important to me, is, is, is existing in that space. So I don't chase the anger. I also don't fake the anger. So you know, when people be like, why aren't you more angry? It's like, I'm, I'm, I'll be angry when I'm angry. I'm not gonna fake, I'm not playing a character on TV. 
I am myself as Trevor, and I think you know the team can agree with that. Is like who I am, uh, you know, on, on camera is I'm trying to get that as close to who I am all the time. So I want you to have a visceral and and real understanding of of how I feel, and by proxy how everyone else feels. I don't want Costa to go on TV and and have a feeling that is completely foreign to what he believes in. I, I you know I want Desi to to imbue a piece of herself in every single piece. I want Ronnie's rage to come through, <laughs> in the charming way that it does. And, and that's, what's, that's what's really important to me, is, is, is having that feeling and the authenticity in the show. And for the rest of you, what is it like having Trevor sort of exude that philosophy? <laughs> he, smelled, he, smelled, <laughs> he smells great. Um, I'll tell you something. <laughs> like, Trevor, Trevor is very metered. He's very centered, and that's pivotal to the show. It's pivotal to the jokes landing because there are days where I come into work and I'm mad. Like there's no jokes at all and I'm in the morning meeting. Can you believe they did it? What? The, the, the. And Trevor says, yes. <laughs> and that calm, you're able to be more surgical in where you hit your punchlines. And I think that's something that it's just, it's a, it's a skill that I, I don't think I'll ever possess at this he, point in life. Yeah, he but, pulls the pod high card a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's very hard to yeah, He's seen this all before. But no, I think, I think it's very much an important part of the show is maintaining a level of calm in the midst of all of this because that's the only way you'll be able to truly clearly see where the lines of humor are and being able to extrapolate that bit of humor from something that may be, on some days, very heavy. Uh, I know Trevor has changed. Being on the show has changed the way that I take in news. Um, because when we were, when you were thinking about doing a field piece, Trevor, would, Trevor said to me, you know, he's like, don't think of this person as wrong. Think of when you're even pitching a field piece, think of that person's perspective first and come from that way. And if you can think of their perspective, then you can find the funniest way to do it because you understand them. So it's really changed. I'm way less angry at the news since I've started working at The Daily Show because I'm just like, oh, these people are just crazy. But <laughs> before it's like they're crazy, you can do a hard line disagreement against them. But... Like when you're thinking about people not wanting to let other kids into their school, you're like, all oh, these people are racist and wrong. But then you take a second and go, okay, I can see why they don't want that. Even though it makes no sense to me because you're being racist and wrong. But if I take the second and go, okay, if I wanted to do a story on this, I could start from seeing their perspective and get the funniest thing out of it because I'm not judging them as people and parents. I'm understanding where they're coming from. So that's what stopped me from being so mad all the time. It's just, I can take a second to see their perspective and then be pissed. It's also funny because sometimes I, I, will, I, I will say like one of my role models in that is, is Michael Costa, funny enough. So, no, genuinely, you know, when, when you live in the news for a lot, it, it does take, you know, it does take its toll. You know, I, I think American news has been created in such a way that it is designed to gin up rage. You know, I think the panel is a perfect example of that. It's designed in such a way that it's not about information, it's about stirring up emotion. You say this, you say that, now we fight. That's not something that is usual in news all over the world. It, it really is entertainment driven. And I remember when I, I went to see Michael Costa out in, in LA before he joined The Daily Show, 
and I was in the back of the comedy store and he got on stage and I remember re like the feeling I had when I was like, oh yeah, this is what you're trying to do with comedy. You're trying to use comedy to dismantle preconceived notions of how the world should be. You're trying to use comedy to challenge ideas that people have and you're trying to use comedy to make people laugh about things they shouldn't laugh about and then process information that they may have been resistant to all along. And, and that's something I had always believed coming from South Africa. We have audiences that never lived together because of the country we were in. And comedy was one of the first places where you saw diverse audiences in South Africa. Black, white, Indian, colored, everyone in one space together. That had never really happened before in the country. And comedy was what brought people together. And so Costa, even till this day, in a morning meeting, there'll be times when everyone is angry together. <laughs> and in the back of the room, Michael Costa, he'll just like shout a little thing over the top. That'll be just, it'll just completely break the ice. It'll, it'll, it'll diffuse the entire feeling of the situation where you go like, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's, that's another way to see it. And sometimes by, by using that comedy to process what's happening, instead of going no, you go, okay, fine, yes, I will, I will take your points of view. So, you know, like for instance, somebody says, um, uh, America has mass shootings because, the, because of pornography. And America has mass shootings because there are too many doors, school shootings, we need fewer doors because the doors, there's too many places the shooter can go. And your first instinct would be like, you're stupid, you idiot, you can't, you yes, you. And then you go, and then like someone like Michael will be like, well, uh, I mean, uh, let's talk about porn. Uh, and so, and you'd be like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, I mean, I don't know about you, sometimes I watch porn and I'm like, I wanna go shoot. And, uh, and it's like, it's just a fun feeling that's weird and different. And you realize that if you accept, if you accept a ludicrous premise, Oftentimes, that's the best way to, to expose how uh, illogical it is. And that's really what you, you're trying to do a lot of the time is go, okay, fine. I accept exactly what you're saying. I take it. I agree with you. Let's, let's, let's go with that. And then you, you end up reaching a better conclusion that, that doesn't just, I think, limit itself to, I disagree with you, no, as opposed to going, oh, yes, I agree with you, and let me take it to its illogical conclusion, and you come to find that this is ridiculous. I, I was talking to... I was talking Give to Give it Dan. up for Michael Costa watching porn, everyone. <laughs> Big porn lover. Just trying, to, just trying to keep those jobs in America. <laughs> I was talking to Dan Amira, who was a former colleague of mine, who's a current writer for The Daily Show, and he was telling me about the ooh jar, uh, which is a little jar you used to take out when the audience ooed instead of laughed, uh, which reminded me of sort of the uh, clapter conundrum, which was when people clap instead of laugh. Um, can you talk about this jar and sort of how do you get people to laugh now instead of just sort of visceral response? Well, I, th I think it's, it's just being the change. Just be who you, you, you want you know, to be in the world. Um, and so I, I've come to realize I do not begrudge my audience for ever feeling a certain way because I'm, I know that I'm lucky enough to work in a comedy building. And so my resistances are built up to the news that comes in and somebody's going to make me laugh in the course of the day, but my audience may not have that luxury. They may be inundated by negative news that leaves them in a space where they feel angry. And so when they come to The Daily Show, you have to find ways to chip away at that to leave people feeling better about the day and the world that they live in. So um, the ooh for me was just like a fun little idea where one day the audience oohed, like you, you said, I said something. And you know, because, because now we're living in a world where um, there, there is no reality, up is down, everything you say could be real. You know, like, like if I said to you, oh no, um, Donald Trump has locked Melania in a basement, 
your first instinct is not like, that's crazy. You're like, wait, did that happen? <laughs> and then you go like, no, no, that didn't happen. So like, you're in a weird world where a lot of the news that's out there that seems like, like a joke is real. So you have to try and recalibrate reality for people to, to, to reset that. And the Uja was one of those things where I'd say a thing and the audience would be like, ooh. And I, I was just like, oh, I, I take your ooh and I put it in my jaw. And I, 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 you know, it was just like a fun little way to show the audience that like, hey, I don't, I don't take everything seriously. And I also, I also see that you're here because we have a live audience. And so sometimes the live audience forgets that they're there and that they're part of a show. And so the audience there would be like, oh yeah, oh yeah, we're here, he can see us. We forgot that. We forgot that we're here. And, and that's, that's where that came from. It's just yeah. like, and that's, that's the thing again, instilling a bit of fun into what we're doing. Um, I think what sets your daily show, especially part in the current climate is how sort of it's international perspective. For the American born uh, correspondents, what have you learned from the international born members of the cast? And from the international, what have you learned from the American? <laughs> I heard, I've learned that Ronnie hates dogs. <laughs> but what I love about that is that I can talk to Ronnie about the fact that I don't really like dogs either. <laughs> I mean, they're cute, but why are they at work? So... No, it's... It's interesting because I... think about my perspective. I think about... You know, I can only come from the perspective of being a black woman and being a black woman born in America, but when you're interacting with a black person who's actually from Africa, um, and you know, my mother went through segregation integration, but it ended when she was about five or six years old. And to talk to someone who is around my age, because apartheid and segregation are the same thing. So to talk to someone who's actually my age who has gone through it, and then his perspective on America is completely different because you know, I was in a, this is a country that the, the country's mostly white and they are in power. But when you're coming from somewhere where the country's mostly black but white people are in power, it's to talk to Trevor and have him see things that I can't see because he came from somewhere where, where, where his culture was the majority. And so his way of seeing racism in America is different because he saw more of his own people where he was from. As opposed, I mean, I'm from Atlanta where they make black people. <laughs> so it's not like I was from somewhere like in the sticks, like, ooh, a black person where? Nah. The mayor's name is Keisha. We're not playing. <laughs> and I'm not joking. Look it up. Um, but I think that's been the best part for me. It's that he's not, we're both angry because it's, it's messed up, but his perspective on it is different. Because like, Ronnie's from, like, Roy's from Birmingham, I'm from Atlanta. So we have the same perspective as Southern black people. And to talk to another black person who sees, not racism in a different way, but just in a different perspective has been very good for me. Because it's not like I'm checking my anger, I'm checking my perspective. And I've been able to learn about racism in the United States based off of Trevor's perspective of it. Uh, for me, uh, so Ronnie and I share an office. We're the only correspondents to share an office, and <laughs> we, we call we call it the rush hour room. Yeah, it's the rush hour. Room. That's for real. That's what we call it. It's their office is right next to mine. I hang in there all the time. He loves animals. I will say that he loves animals. Uh, <laughs> 
but what happens over the course of a day is that Ronnie and I sometimes, you know, there's stuff coming out the computer speakers and we can both hear what the other one is doing. And through that, there's been a lot of cross-cultural cultural learning. Yeah. And so through that and like and talking with Ronnie about, you know, everything that happens and what's going on in Southeast Asia with regards to just how a lot of Asian culture with with regards to hierarchies and some degree of racism is not that dissimilar from what I went through in the South in terms of there being these types of things. And we'll have serious conversations about that. And then there's days where I'm showing him videos on world star hip hop and- Not a world star. And bringing him up to speed on a lot of the craziness. I, I walked in their office. This is, this is what it's like working at The Daily Show. I walked in their office one time. They were watching Chris Rock's newest special <laughs> with Chinese subtitles. <laughs> Talk, talk, and Roy was saying, what's the symbol for the N-word? It and, was and so great! That's what, that's what they're talking about. And, uh, it was so great! And wasn't it like... And I gotta say, I learned some things that day, too. <laughs> about how we, Chinese people say the N-word. We China. all learned, what was it, ghost? It? I don't want to say it. No. <laughs> no, 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 don't say the N-word. What was the translation? You no, said I don't want to say that either. No. I really don't oh, want to say that. Wait, wait, wait. No, we can't say it because we can't teach white folks a new way to call us the N-word. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> thank but, you, Ronnie. Thank, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I remember. That was a I trap, which I recognized immediately. No, but, it wasn't yeah. a trap. I was trying to remember. He learned something. You learn. Yeah, I'll show, uh, we see Roy, and I'll, I'll show Roy about, I'll update him on the Malaysian election, which no one cares about. And I in have America. not asked him once about that, not one time. <laughs> yeah, and then he'll, he'll let me, he'll try to get me to understand what, you know, Corey Holcomb is saying this week, or uh, what the Pusha T Drake beef means, and <laughs> I'll ask him I stuff don't... like, what, the, what does sauce mean? What is sauce? And he'll... Swag, baby, come yeah. on. Swag! And what is, I don't know what that means either, but, you know. Yeah. It's like flexing. Uh, okay, well, you, gotcha. you just... <laughs> You just yeah. learn how much closer and similar we are as a people than we are different. Is uh, sure. Ultimately, <laughs> what I learned. We learn how there's the N word in every language, is what we learn. Yeah. Like I always knew there was. <laughs> yeah, also, Roy took me to, in Cleveland, Roy took me to my first Waffle House to have grits. Yeah. So. yeah. That was a good yeah. time. That's the one place I hate about living in a Yankee hell hole. Um, <laughs> known as New York City, is that I can't get grits. No one knows what I'm talking about. But the fun part about it is I get to tell people that New York's very racist. And that I appreciate in a way that no one can understand. Yeah, so. and it's interesting about, sorry, just as international people, like, it's weird because we came here, oh, I don't want to speak for Trevor, well, I came here, like, because I wanted to be here, you know? So I obviously think that here it's better than where I'm from. Don't tweet that. And... <laughs> Don't let them know I said it's that. It's on Facebook Live. It's <laughs> over, Ronnie. Ronnie it's over. It's the, the BuzzFeed articles. Ronnie hate, <laughs> hates animals and yeah, he hates countries. But, but my point is that that approaches how I, I, I do comedy. Because when I come here, I genuinely am like, this place is awesome. This is the best. It's the NBA. I'm always like excited to meet people and like, yeah, it's the NBA. This is the NBA. <laughs> no, in Asia, we think of America as the NBA. Of it's country. So they go. just love black no, no, people? No, no. In <laughs> No, it's, NBA it's is America, black America is where you go to be the best at whatever you're doing. That's, that's how we think of it. Like, like the Chinese. Unless you're from here. Yeah. It is. Finally, somebody admits it. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the, the Chinese name for America is Meiguo. 
that directly translates into English as beautiful country. That's the Chinese name for America, beautiful country. That's what we say when we say America, we say beautiful country. Have you been to a beautiful country? And then you finally come here and everybody <laughs> hates everything. <laughs> so anyway, I, I still like to hear celebrating that, Costa. <laughs> so uh, it's time for uh, audience questions. <laughs> we'll start with the Facebook live question while they're lining up. Uh, from Carmen, what is the, quiz, the quickest you put together a story or a joke uh, right before it went live? The quickest we've put together a story or a joke before it went live, I would say, was probably five minutes before we went <laughs> out. Um, like, we, we had the show, we were ready, we were going out to, to tape, and then it was literally someone will come running in. Oftentimes, it'll be the head writer, Dan Amira. He'll be like, this just broke, we've got to do something about it. And it's like, all right, fine. And then we just start riffing and making jokes and trying to figure out what we're going to say. But it's, I'll say five minutes, three minutes, sometimes even two, two minutes before we tape, we will have something, or we'll have something and the show, we're already in the midst of taping it, and so then I'll start speaking about it and we'll put it up online between the scenes yeah. because the show is always living, so it, it'll be any time, all the time. Mike? Oh, hi. <laughs> hi there. Uh, I'm Sarah, I'm a teacher in Virginia, and I teach American government and politics, and I was wondering, what are your tips on teaching Trump? What are your tips on teaching Trump? To eighth Trump? graders. Oh, I thought you meant teaching him. I was gonna be like, you sit him down. <laughs> Um, Get something low cut, titties <laughs> up. That's, that is a whole charge. I will not like to catch a whole charge. I think, I think, the, I think for myself, I, I don't know because I'm not a teacher, but I will say one thing that has helped me in even teaching Trump to the building, and that's maybe coming from an international place, is understanding that Trump may be unique to America in this time or in this period, but really he is an all too common leader in the world. There are many Trumps in the world. There are many leaders that, you know, that gin up hatred and demagoguery. There are many leaders who have found a way to make themselves synonymous with the idea of the country, similar to what he's done with the flag, where he's made it seem like he is the flag and the flag is him and the anthem and it's all one thing and you cannot criticize him without criticizing the country. Those are all things that are all too familiar when you come from many developing nations. So for me, if you really want to teach the kids about Trump, Teach them about world leaders from other places. Teach them about Gaddafi. Teach them about Robert Mugabe. Teach them about Papa world Dad. leaders that are almost exactly the same as him, just in a different context, speaking a different language. Thank you. I've read your audio book. And, and by the way, that means, and I mean that personality-wise, because I know someone will take it out of context and be like, oh, you're saying the same atrocities. I'm not saying that. I'm saying personality-wise. I'm saying Donald Trump hasn't done the same things as those leaders yet, hasn't gotten the opportunity, but I think personality-wise, you will find many similarities between them. Thank you. I've listened to your audiobook so many times, and your mom's my biggest fan. Thank you very much. Like, Thank I, you. I am her biggest fan. Thank you very much. Thank you for Thank what you, you do teaching as well. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you for being a teacher. Hello. Uh, I got two questions. Uh, one, I'll ask... I'll ask I was trying to figure out Sounds like you get one question. Sounds like you have Come zero on. questions. Okay. Can I get a selfie? No. What is that? That's right. not a question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll, grab we'll, we'll grab a selfie off. Oh, yeah. My second question is um, I'm a big fan of uh, Black Panther, and I recently watched it. And I know that you, Trevor, are too, because I saw your interview and talked about, oh, I love Black Panther. It was right. Great. But what I feel like you should have told people was that you were in Black Panther, and most people didn't realize that. I feel is, like is this is this you like taking me down? Is that what's happening yeah, yeah, right it's now? My, it's my turn. Yeah. Hey man, I got rent to pay. You can't take him down. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm curious as to like 
the process of you being involved in it and everything. Oh, that, that, was, uh, that was really a, a wonderful, lucky situation. So Ryan Coogler, the director of Black Panther, I came to know before uh, he was directing Black Panther. I've been a fan of him since uh, Fruitvale Station. He's an amazing, amazing guy. Came onto the show and, um, you know, I connected him with some friends of mine in South Africa and he went into the country and he did his research about South Africa and Kosa people, etc., to create the characters and the languages for Black Panther. And so um, I guess when the movie was, was in its final stages, he said to me, hey, do you, do you just want to do like a fun little cameo as a voice? And I said, oh, I, I, would, I would love to. And, and that's how that came about. But I... I, uh, yeah, I, I didn't want to like spoil it for people or anything and be like, I am in the black belt, you can hear my voice at What'd this specific point. And no, it's <laughs> like, yeah, it's, 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 it's fun. And I, like, I was just like, just if you, yeah, it's just enjoy it. Like it, I, I didn't need it. I didn't need for anyone to know that, if that makes sense. It was just, cause I just loved the movie. I was just like, this is gonna be fun. All right, thanks. Cool. Uh, well, we're gonna take another question from Facebook Live and then we'll probably have only have time for one more question. Fight it out! Uh, so, okay, so what? Dude with the chain. Figured it would be you. Figured it would so be you. So you can decide amongst yourselves who will get to ask it. Um, Noel from Facebook Live asks. Uh, he remembers watching election night and seeing the expressions on Trevor and Roy's face, realizing what's happening. Uh, can you describe that feeling that night? Wow, the feeling on that night was one that was. Uh, it was surreal. It was surreal because. I, I think I had fallen into the trap of listening to everyone around me, like I'd listened to the polls, which I think is a horrible thing in America. I don't think anyone should listen to the polls. I don't think the polls should be publicized. It should only be for political campaigns and nobody else. I don't think you should vote because of what the, they say the vote is gonna be. But I, I'd, like I, I'd always said throughout the race, in the show, I'd always said, guys, I think Donald Trump is doing a lot better than people are saying he is. And because of the news and because of everything, people were like, no, 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 this is not, he's not gonna win. And in that moment for me, it was very much me reacting to the building because I, I felt a visceral pain and a shock within the building. Like I know the thing that broke my heart the most was, was a lot of you know, my, my colleagues who were women in the show who said like, I, I felt like I've, I've lost, I felt like I've been betrayed by a piece of my country. And so that, that for me was the visceral feeling that I had where I was like, oh shit, it, like it got real. You know, that, that, was, that was the moment that I think we shared on, on the live show. Yeah, and I think you know, on camera, we had talked about me maybe, I legit wanted some Pepto, and then we thought, well, maybe we should put the bottle of Pepto <laughs> on the desk as kind of a visual representation of the mood and of the sentiment. But then as the numbers kept coming in during the show, he just kept saying, you know what? Add another bottle of Pepto <laughs> to the desk. And I think we ended up with like three and a half bottles or something like that. Uh, okay, so um, beyond just in terms of anger, you talked about um, from CNN, uh, Fox News, One American News, MSNBC, they talk about how much they talk about Trump and politics. And then you also talk about Jon Stewart getting tired of being angry and stuff like that. Do you see a point where you just don't have another joke about him being orange or you just, you don't have anything else and you, you know, no matter the fact that it's still the daily news, you just don't want to do it anymore and you want to move on? I, I think I, I, I can see a point where I go like, I, I would no longer talk about him being orange and I, I might switch to tangerine or, or another, another shade. I, I don't think we'd ever run out of jokes about Donald Trump. Um, but what, what I have come to do, and we work on this on the show all the time, is my firm belief is that this should not be the story of Donald Trump. This is the story of America. 
And it's the story of America reacting to Donald Trump. This is the story of everybody and how they're reacting to the force known as Donald Trump. So it's the story of Republicans. What is the Republican Party going to be after Donald Trump? Do they really stand for their conservative values? Do they really believe in small government? Or are these things that they've just espoused throughout time to get to a different goal, to cut tax for the rich people, etc.? Like, so for, for myself, what I've come to do is I've come to acknowledge and accept this. Like, they'll tell you on the show, there's many times where I've gone like, let's not talk about Trump at all. But then what you're doing is, like an ostrich, you're burying your head in the sand. We can't ignore the force that is happening to us as people. What we can do is contextualize it and in many ways not make it the defining factor of what we do. So if you look at the shows, and we genuinely, we analyze this and we work hard on this. Yes, Trump may be a continuous character that will always be in the story of America, but we speak about everything on the show. You know, so we're engaging in the stories of Parkland and the kids and how they were protesting and how they were moving their cause forward. Uh, we were speaking about Starbucks. We speak about pol police shootings, police brutality in America. We speak about the Me Too movement. We speak about inequality in America. We speak about what's happening in the world. We spoke about the French elections. We were speaking about what was happening in Germany. We speak about what's happening in Asia and Australia. We speak about everything. The one constant, though, that crosses throughout time is going to be Trump. And because he's president of the United States, we do not have the luxury of ignoring him because with one flick of a pen, he can start a trade war and now you can't just say, oh, we're not gonna talk about the fact that now Canada is you know, appealing to the World Trade Organization to, to, to fight against what Donald Trump has just done. So I, I think that's really the case, is we've come to realize that, look, this person is here, he is real, it is going to be a constant. We will continuously jab and have fun with this. And similar to South Africa, we had a president by the name of Jacob Zuma, and there was a time when we just accepted, this is gonna be the president, there's always gonna be jokes about him scattered throughout our lives and our comedy, but there are other things happening. And so, I know when we create the show, yes, you will always see Donald Trump as long as he is president of the United States, but you will also see every single other issue that we feel is as important as it needs to be, and that's why we put it on the show. Thank you, thank you all for coming. Thank cool. you. That's it for another episode of Good One. The Daily Show airs Monday through Thursday at 11 p.m. Good One is produced by Nick Rad. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write our view and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them. What the heck? You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I am Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with a new comedian and a new joke. Have a good one. That was a HeadGum Podcast.